Amen. What a great start to our service, praising the Lord through song, and I'm so thankful to, to be able to gather with you today. My name is Billy Driver. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Bayleaf, and if you're a guest, I want to welcome you again, as Patrick already did. Just grateful for you to be here with us, and grateful to gather as a church and to worship God today. And so I have a message this morning that's titled, A Heart for God's Glory. A Heart for God's Glory. And we're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and begin turning to 1 Chronicles 28. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and then also verse 20. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And while you're turning there, I'll let you know I'm leading a a study on Monday nights. We're in the, the book of Nehemiah. And this past Monday, we were in Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah 8, 5, uh, when Ezra is reading from the the book of the law of Moses, from from the Torah, he asks the people to stand while he reads the word of God. And so I'm going to ask if you're able to stand this morning. I'm going to read our verses. And so if you'll go ahead and stand now, I'm going to read 1 Chronicles 28, 1 through 10. And this is God's word. It says, David assembled all the leaders of Israel and Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of the divisions and the king's service, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and cattle of the king and his sons, along with the court officials, the fighting men, and all the best soldiers. Then King David rose to his feet, and he said, Listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant, and as a footstool for our God. I had made preparations to build. But God said to me, You are not to build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me out of all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader. And from the house of Judah, my father's family, and from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And out of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who is to build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he perseveres in keeping my commands and my ordinances as he is doing today. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and follow all the commands of the Lord your God so that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And as for you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And David gives him the plans in verses 11 through 19, but look at verse 20. It 
It says, Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous. Do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. Let us pray. Father, I just pray now, Lord, as we study your word, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts, Lord, to hear from you. Father, this is your word, and it's a word for us this morning here at Bayleaf. And so, Father, I just pray you'd be with us. May we glorify you with our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Thank you for standing. I was, I was, as I was studying that, I was thinking about the fact that they stood for hours, and I'm grateful that we had 10 verses, uh, 11 verses to cover. But I really do appreciate that. I, I just, I feel the weight of this chapter. This is such a, a, a marvelous chapter for us to study this morning, for us to look at. You know, we're continuing our series through the Old Testament called The Movement of the Spirit of God. We started in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, with that great verse. It says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so today we're in the Chronicles. You know, First and Second Chronicles are really a summary of God's faithfulness, God's promise to provide for his people, and he does so through the kingship of David and, and Solomon, which take up much of the Chronicles. And before we dive into the 28th chapter, we need to understand context. We need to understand how this is written or who it's written to, what time period is it written in. And what we know about this great book is that it's written during the post-exilic time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is after the exile. It's a much later time than the events described in the Chronicles. Israel had been through exile for 70 years. And they would have seen the destruction of Solomon's temple, which is the temple David is describing here as, as wanting to build for the Lord. And they would have seen the gates destroyed by fire. They would have seen the walls of Jerusalem in ruins. And so we must study this, this chapter asking a question. And the question is, why is this written to this audience at this time in history? How is this reminder of Solomon's temple comforting after it has been destroyed? Isn't this rubbing salt in their wounds? Reminding them of the glorious days of David's kingdom, of, of the temple that Solomon built that we know the Babylonians would destroy. Well, we must remember who the author is. It's God. This is God's word. And the answer is that God wants to remind his people, as he does want to remind us today, of his covenant promises. That the eternal kingdom would be established by the Messiah. That he will come and he will establish that kingdom. And so Solomon's temple represents the meeting place between God and his people, right? It was a place of worship. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of atonement. And even though all those are true, what God wanted to remind his people, what he wants to remind us today, is that there's a better temple to come. One which is not a building, but which would be the church, with Christ as the head, that Christ is the temple. You see, the temple points us to Christ. 
There's a lot of verses we could turn to this morning to see that throughout Scripture, but I'm reminded of what Jesus would say in John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said these words. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will do what? I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, everyone was baffled. John tells us that the Jews said the temple at the time had taken 46 years to build. How are you going to rebuild that? Right, they were looking at the, the building. But John would give us these great words in chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. Really his commentary from the disciples. John said that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. What scriptures are they talking about? The Old Testament. They believe the scriptures about the temple of God, about who Jesus is, the Messiah who is to come. You see, there are, there are many more passages we could look at that show the centrality of the temple in the life of God's people. But today, we're going to look at 1 Chronicles 28. And we're going to look at these verses, verses 1 through 10. And I want us to see three things, three I think very practical things that, that we can learn and apply to our lives here at Bayleaf. The first is this. We see that God's plans are greater than our plans. God's plans are greater than our plans. Look at verses 2 and 3. Right, Verse 2, then King David rose to his feet. That's an interesting phrase. All right, it's, he's, he's, he's getting old. This is near the end of his, his reign. And... David being seated is something that was not scholars say you would not have read. So to describe him to rise to his feet. And he said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and as a footstool for our God. I made preparations to build it, but God said to me, you're not to build a house for my name. Why? Because you're a man of war and have shed blood. Notice the contrast there, right? David is saying, I want to build a temple where the Ark of the Lord's Covenant can be placed. He says as a footstool for our God. And he says, I even made preparations for it. What preparations would that be? Well, the materials, the workers, the plans. But look at verse 3. But God said, no, you must not build a temple to honor me because you've spilled too much blood. Your son, God would tell him, your son Solomon will build it. Now, the name Solomon means peace. Solomon would prove himself to be a man of peace and a man who would obey the Lord here. But notice the great humility of David in these words. I think there's a great lesson for us. David was described by God as a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? Right? This was a good thing for the Lord that David desired. There's nothing that would tell us this was, this was in any way self-centered. David's not being selfish. He's desiring a good thing for the Lord, and yet God said no. God said no. Let me ask us this question this morning. How do you handle disappointment? How do you handle disappointment? Especially disappointment in life regarding the things of God, regarding things we may want to do for God. Now, I'm not talking about disappointment that you didn't win the lottery. That's a different kind of disappointment here. We're talking about real disappointment. We're talking about when you want to do something 
that you think is right. And God says, no. God says, I have different plans for you. I pray that we would handle it like David did, amen? So David was content. David was content with God's change of plans. Contentment is a virtue that if we're honest, we would say we don't always have. I think some people are more content than others. But I think if we did a survey here this morning, I think most of us would, would admit that we struggle with being content. In fact, I love this quote by Martin Luther. He's speaking of contentment when he said this. He said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. All right, what a great word that is. I've, had many, I've held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But whatever I place in God's hands, that I still have. That's what David did. That's what David did his whole life, didn't he? Right, he placed his plans, he placed his kingship, he, he placed his life in ministry in God's hands. And David put the mission above his ambition. Right, he put the mission above his ambition. And David didn't complain to God about this. He, he could have said something like this. David could have said, but God, this is one thing I want to do for you. Before I'm finished, before I'm done, one last time, I want to see that the, the ark of, of the covenant, that the ark is not in a tent any longer. Please let me do this one thing for you and build this temple as an act of worship. Right? If David would have, would have prayed that, it would have been a fine prayer. I don't think any of us would have had issue with his words, but David didn't do that, did he? He was content to trust God. And David was faithful to work behind the scenes to make plans, to hire the workmen, to gather the supplies, and to pass them along to Solomon and allow others to receive the honor and the esteem of building the temple. You know, I can't help but think of the stark difference in the way that David handled disappointment here and the way that, that King Saul handled disappointment earlier in life. In fact, when Saul learned in 1 Samuel 15 that his kingdom would be taken from him. And then later that God had anointed David to be king, not Jonathan, his son. It drove Saul mad. Right? It, it began to rot his heart, and it led to a hatred of David and ultimately a rejection of God. Such a sad ending to a king of Israel. And God rejected Saul because Saul turned away from God. You see, David put the mission above his ambition, but Saul, on the other hand, put his ambition above God's mission. And it led to ruin. What's the practical difference between the way these two kings handled disappointment? Well, I believe it was this. It was the fact that David was a man after God's own heart. Right? David sought the Lord. David wanted to be faithful in whatever God was doing. He looked at God's mission and he laid his ambition aside and he joined God. And he was content here to see Solomon receive the honor of building the temple for the Lord. And I believe David was blessed his whole life. Second thing I want us to see here is this. I want us to see that God's purpose for his people is to bring him glory through worship. God's purpose for his people is to bring him glory 
through worship. This is a, a really great overarching truth that runs not only in this chapter, I believe it runs all throughout the Word of God. This is central to many passages throughout Scripture. But let's not miss its emphasis here in these verses. What we know is it has been 400 years since the Exodus. And God was symbolically with Israel dwelling in a tent. Right? The tent of meeting, they called it. It was the tabernacle. And this tent was a place where Israel could come to God on his terms and worship God and bring sacrifices to God. Inside the tent was the most holy place. This was where only the high priest could enter. And in there was a gold chest we know as the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that gold chest were three items. There was a gold, char, a gold jar filled with manna. There was Aaron's walking stick, his rod. And there was the Ten Commandments on two tablets. And we have two important chapters in Israel's history that speaks of the temple's need and purpose to be the center of worship. For God's people. Those chapters are 2 Samuel 6 and 2 Samuel 7. We don't have time to read those this morning, but I would encourage you to do so. It's great chapters that really set the course for Israel moving forward and impact our chapter today. What we know from from 2 Samuel, in fact, is in chapter 5. We know that David had been king for seven years, and he had been king over the southern two tribes. But then he becomes king over all of Israel, over all 12 tribes. And what he does is he establishes Jerusalem as the capital. And in those two chapters, he goes to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Right? He wanted, he wanted God to be the center of his kingdom. He wanted God to be the center of life in Jerusalem. And he brings the Ark back and he houses it in a new tent, along with all the priestly equipment. And that's where this ark has been in our chapter. It's in this tent. And you see the people being back in Jerusalem, they, they, they're living in nice houses while the ark dwells in a tent. And David feels it's not right. He wants the people to be able to gather together for corporate worship in a temple, a proper temple that's fit for the ark of the covenant, for the glory of God in worship. Now, I don't want you to miss this because David's heart, first and foremost, of course, is for God. But we see in these words, in these great chapter, that David's heart was also for the congregation. David's heart was for God's people. Right? David's heart was for the church. David's heart was that the people of God would be able to have a place to worship their God. In the heart of what we see here in 1 Chronicles 28, as, as well as 2 Samuel 6 and 7, is the heart God has for his people to worship him to bring him glory in their everyday lives. right? What we, what we know is, is that they had to answer these questions, how to properly approach God in worship. What are the rules and the procedures for doing this correctly? right? And they're God's rules. What are God's standards? And it's what D.A. Carson says when he's, he's speaking of these chapters, 2 Samuel 6-7, speaking of the temple plans of David, and he says this, he says, so now you have a firm place with the dimensions being laid out. The plans are according to God's design, plans for the temple. Much of it is designed to teach that the only approach to God for sinful human beings, right, his covenant people, are by the means that God himself has ordained, by the sacrifices that God himself has commanded. 
in the terms that God himself lays out by the priest that God himself ordains and by the shed blood that God himself prescribes. And all these things get hammered into the nation and begin to point forward to the need for a sacrifice that will actually and finally deal with sin prove to be more transformational than the blood of bulls and goats. You see, the ultimate way that we glorify God is through the blood of Christ. The book of Hebrews, which we, we studied and, and, and preached from, from this pulpit, explains that, right? And now through Christ's death, the veil is torn, and we can access God's presence with boldness, the writer of Hebrews would tell us, Boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. You see, throughout history, throughout history, the temple is to be a place where God meets and dwells with his people. But we know Solomon's temple, it's described in our chapter. We know the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, which is where we started this sermon series, and Herod's temple. All those temples are temporary buildings. They all were built, and they're all destroyed. But the everlasting temple is Jesus Christ. And therefore, by our being in Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is the temple, the meeting place between God and sinners. And the church as the temple is where God speaks through us to the world around us. And this is God's story. This is God's story of his covenant people. God meeting with his people using temple language. We see it throughout the word of God. We see it in Genesis as a prototype in the garden. But we also see it at the end, don't we? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, where John is describing this new Jerusalem, right, this heavenly home, John says this. He says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple, right? The city's temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, there's no temple in Revelation 21. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Why? Because in that chapter, we are all in the presence of the living God. We're in the most holy place. Bailey, if I share that, because that's where we're headed That's what God is showing us here, that that we're headed that way, that we don't need a temple today to bring sacrifices to God in, right? We don't need to to, to be outside the church and, and buy bulls and goats and then come in and have the high priest sacrifice it. We don't need that today. Why? Because the veil is torn, because Jesus died for us and has given us access into that holy place. We together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, aren't we? And we gather together each week to worship God. Our sacrifice, what's our sacrifice? It's the praise of our hearts, to ascribe worth and praise and thanksgiving as those who are far off but are now brought near by the blood of Christ. It's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, listen to what Peter tells us. 
thinking along these lines, this language. He says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises, right? Or your version may say, proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Let's glorify God in our worship. And then third, third thing we'll look at here is this. God accomplishes his mission through generations. This is a very practical point. God accomplishes his mission through generations. We see that in his words to Solomon, verses 9 and 10 and verse 20. And here we have these beautiful words from David to Solomon, these words from, from an aging king to the next king, right? This, this transition is taking place in these words. This is a royal ceremony, and yet it's also the words from a father to a son, from a disciple maker to a disciple. And I want you to think about David's life. Think about this. How, why did God use David the way he did? I mean, if you've ever studied David, you would quickly find out David was far from perfect, wasn't he? He made terrible mistakes. We think of the sin of adultery, followed by an attempt to cover that sin by having Uriah murdered. There's mistakes of judgment. There seems to be constant fear, fear of Saul trying to kill him, though he knew what God had promised him. And yet through it all, David is, as Scripture tells us, a man after God's own heart. And here we have these beautiful words in, in verse 9 and 10, from an imperfect man to an imperfect son about a perfect God. And we have this challenge for Solomon to be a man who, who seeks the Lord, who obeys God's commands and walks in them with his whole heart and with a willing mind. And there's a promise and there's a warning in these verses, isn't there? Right? If you seek God, you will find him. But if you forsake God, he will cast you off forever. So we see this, this is serious business, this work of God seeking the Lord. And what we need today are men and women who, like David, will look the next generation in the eye and say, be strong and do it. Seek the Lord, obey him. Do not fear. Worship God. You see, here's the reason as to why David, I believe David was okay letting others receive the, the credit and the esteem of completing the temple. And it's this. David knew it was the work and mission of God to be passed on from one generation to the next. It was not David's work. It was not going to be Solomon's work. It was God's work. And David knew that God would do that work. And he knew that God would accomplish the work through the people of God. One generation to the next. How could he be confident of that? How did David know that? It was through the experience of walking with God every day. David knew that's who, that's who God is. It's his character. David knew God's words. And he knew the promise of them. And he modeled this and he taught this to his son, to the next generation. 
Church, I believe if we're going to be faithful, found faithful, then we have to be a part of God's mission to make disciples of Christ, and God's mission is accomplished from one generation to the next generation. Let us be reminded of the words of Psalm 145, verse 4, where the psalmist says this, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. All right, one generation shall declare your mighty acts. They shall commend your works to another. See, I believe our greatest need at Bayleaf today is for every man, every woman, every mom, every dad, every grandparent, every member walking with Jesus and teaching the next generation what it means to seek the Lord with their whole heart, to obey his commands, to obey the word. I believe we need every member investing in the next generation at Bayleaf. Do you believe that too? Well, there's a lot of ways we can do that, isn't there? There's a lot of ways we can pour into the next generation. We can teach Sunday school. We can teach preschool. We can serve at Vacation Bible School this summer. Right? I'm excited for us to have VBS this summer in just about a month. In fact, after the service, you can see Christy. We've got a table set up out here. Would love to, to see people signing up to serve and the volunteers so that we can make this happen. Why? Because we want to invest in the next generation. You see, often it's easy for us to think, well, someone else will do that. Someone else will do that. I just don't have time, Billy. I, I don't want to miss my class. I don't want to miss my service. I don't want to miss my fill in the blank. Right? It's easy for us to, to, to fall into that area. In fact, I remember the first thing I ever did in church was uh, this was years ago. I was 20 years old, and I got called and asked if I would uh, help lead uh, a group in, in RAs. Does anyone know what RAs is? Royal Ambassadors, right? And um, I got that call, and, and I was terrified, right? You know what I said? I said, let me pray about it. Right? What, some of you are laughing. You know what that means. That means get me off this call as fast as I can, Lord. But here's what this guy said. I must have been the 20th person that said, let me pray about it. Because here's what he said. He goes, Billy, what's there to pray about? He goes, we need you. <laughs> he goes, I've got nobody. <laughs> I think I was at the end of his list. And, um, and you know what? I said, why not? I said, yes, I'll do it. And I, I, listen, I'm sharing that story because that was, that was the first step amongst many steps, including direct, you know, working in the parking lot and helping in other ways, that God used to affirm a call in my life to serve him in full-time ministry, right? God uses those things to move us along in his mission to reach the next generation. And I want you to hear me on this, church, because I, I pray, I pray often that God would never move past Bayleaf because we're more concerned with, with preserving our way of church or our, our comforts, preserving our comforts, than we are in helping the next generation come to know Jesus. And I don't believe that's true. I believe we are concerned. We are a church of every generation. But, but may we press on in that heart to serve the Lord and to tell people about Jesus. You know, Judges chapter 2, verse 10 gives us a, a warning. It says that, that one generation is all it takes to forget God. That's a great warning. I have it underlined in my Bible. One generation that did not know God, and disastrous results will follow. 
May that never be said of us. May God find us faithful. Amen? We need men and women who will stand up, like David, who will, who will commit to helping the next generation know and follow the Lord. Men and women who will put God's mission above their ambition, who, like David in our chapter, would understand that as long as God is glorified, it doesn't matter if I'm in the background or if I'm up front, if I'm in the preschool, preschool hall on my knees playing with kids, or if I'm up on the third floor teaching a class. It doesn't matter. Why? Because my heart is for God's glory. Let that be said of us. Church, I want you to know your staff loves you. Loves you. We love God's word. And let us together be a people who glorify God in worship and who serve the Lord in faithfulness. Amen? Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this, this opportunity you gave us to worship you this morning. And as we saw in your word, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who glorify you with our worship. I pray, Lord, that we'd value the, the congregational worship, the coming together as a people of God, glory, glorifying your name. May we always keep the mission above our ambition. May we, like David, pass our faith to the next generation and declare your mighty deeds to one another. So, Father, work in our heart this morning. May we not leave here without doing business with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to have a, a time of invitation.